High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. I'm your host, Dr. Onit Lev, an emergency and addiction doctor who has worked at the White House and still practices on the front lines. Right here on High Truths, you will learn from experts, hear stories from the emergency department, and listen to people who have struggled from addiction. Each episode, we will answer questions from you, our listeners. To learn more about the show, submit a question, access educational material, or even take a quiz, you can visit us on hightruths.com. We are so excited about this podcast, the interesting questions that are being asked, and the fascinating line of experts we will bring. On this first episode, I want to introduce myself and the type of discussions that we will be having on drugs and addiction. As this is our introductory episode, it'll be a little different than future episodes in that I will share a monologue on the mission of High Truths. The global mission is a united physical health, mental health, and addiction. As a doctor, I aim to treat the whole person, not individual body organs or systems. I'm working to be providing great medical care as well as smart health policy for America. How common is addiction? According to the National Drug Use and Health Survey, 165 million people, that's over 60% of Americans aged 12 or older who have used some type of addictive substance in the past month. Those drugs include any illegal drug as well as alcohol, tobacco, and kratom. The top three addicted drugs used were, in order, alcohol, followed by tobacco, and third, marijuana. We will be talking about all types of drugs, opioids, including prescription heroin, fentanyl, non-opioid prescriptions that can cause abuse, such as benzodiazepine, sleep aids, and Adderall, methamphetamine, and marijuana. I want you, our listeners, to decipher fact from fiction and come to your own conclusions about drug use. Let me suggest who may be interested in listening to High Truths. There are many of you such as my colleagues. I think you would be very interested in the science and evidence-based medicine, and you will be hearing from amazing colleagues from around the country who know the science of addiction. You will learn so much from them. Other people are parents. I'm a parent, and you're always worried about your children, and you may want to know how to talk to your kids about drugs and how early and what should you say. So this podcast is for you. What about young adults, my children's age? You may want to be listening to ask questions, to learn more. There's temptation out there. There is a, you know, drug use increase during the pandemic, peer pressure. But I think that if you have the information um, that we have to share with you, you will be making good risk-benefit calculations when it comes to experimenting with drugs and potential consequences. Seniors people like my parents, you may be wondering if marijuana or CBD is a good health choice, maybe for sleep or anxiety. But I really caution you to learn more. You're a much more vulnerable population as we get older. We are you know, have other problems, diabetes, high blood pressure, um, medications that we're taking. And there are so many drug interactions that are very complicated that you need to be aware of before you choose to try a marijuana type product. Let me tell you a story that, that illustrates this example. I recall last Thanksgiving when grandpa came to the emergency department as my patient. 
He came because the family couldn't wake him up. He wasn't acting normal. We call that altered mental status. What happened was the day before family got together and grandpa was complaining about all his many pills that he had to take multiple times a day and that he just couldn't sleep and he was, you know, tired of it all. And so the grandson, well-intentioned, say, hey, grandpa, why don't you try this pot brownie? Maybe it'll help you. And, and it did. Grandpa slept really well. In the morning, he got up, he had some sleep, and he had an, another bite of the brownie because it worked so well the first time. But now it worked so well that he couldn't wake up and family became alert and brought him to the emergency room. And he was diagnosed with encephalopathy, which means damage to the brain. THC is the psychoactive chemical in marijuana and has very prolonged effects in grandpa. It had prolonged effects in grandpa because of his underlying liver failure. When your liver is not working as well, drugs last much longer in your body. And grandpa had to be admitted to the hospital and the family was, you know, wondering, you know, like what happened and and isn't it terrible? The grandson told me, isn't it terrible that he has to take all these medicines and isn't this better? And I said, no, all those medicines are keeping him alive. And if he's having problems sleeping, there's other things to do for sleep besides medications and taking all those medicines and having those problems is definitely annoying, but they're keeping grandpa alive And if he has issues with sleep, then, you know, there's other ways of dealing with that instead of causing drug interactions. And, and, um, you know, family felt terrible about the the incident. And I could tell that they were very well-meaning. They weren't trying to poison grandpa. And after a couple of days, he he was back to his usual self. But it it did take a while and it it ended up, you know, with the um, stay in the hospital. So. The other group of people who may be interested in listening to the show, and I hope that you listen to the show, is if you have an issue with addiction, uh, any type of drugs, um, or even if you don't and you think that you're fine by by using drugs and it's not affecting you, you may want to listen from our scientists and experts and, and things that are happening because it's not just about you. Maybe you're fine, but what about your friends? What about your children? I hope that you will listen to High Truths and learn that addiction is a chronic relapsing brain disorder. Chronic means it lasts a long time. Relapsing means that you have, it comes back and forth uh, and returns. You have good days and bad days. And a brain disorder because it's a disease that affects the receptors of your brain. And it has issues of addiction as well as withdrawal. And if you have a problem, please, I urge you to seek care from compassionate providers and without stigma. Treatment and recovery is possible. Let me tell you an example. You will meet on High Truths a wonderful man named Robert who went from a 1.6 GPA in high school and three years being homeless on the streets using intravenous drugs to now being drug-free and an honor student in college studying computer science. What was his secret? You may want to know. Listen to that show with Robert. it's, uh, It's inspiring. Let me share with you now my personal mission for High Truths, much more than just a podcast. We're here to talk about things, to educate things, but also to change things and policies with your individual life, 
with your family, with your neighborhood community. And of course, I want to to change the world. You will be my partners uh, in that, in making this world a better place by having a good brain full of good uh, hopes and energies and with less drugs because that causes a problem. So let me tell you how it all came about for me. I started advocating for my community in San Diego. And from there, I had successful programs that went and helped other counties in California, then in other places like New York. And I thought, uh, wow, if I can just control the world, if I come go to Washington, I can fix the drug problem. I can make the world better. If I was only given a chance, if I was in control, um, you know, if I was writing the laws, then I can make it all better. And they say, be careful what you wish for, because I got to go to the White House and I became the first chief medical officer of the Office of National Drug Control Policy. And I came in with a long list of things that I wanted to accomplish. And if we only can do this, then, you know, the world would be another place and we wouldn't have drug problems. Spoiler alert, I did not complete my list. Um, And there are still a lot of problems with the drugs. But I am very proud of the work that I did uh, while at ONDCP. I actually, going back, uh, completed 30% of my list and also did things that I never thought I would be involved in that I'm proud of. But now, uh, leaving that, I have amazing insights, I've met amazing people, and I feel that I can bring that experience into the community and actually work better for for you, for, for us, for our families, for our communities to prevent drugs and uh, provide treatment in, in better ways to make an impact. Early in the opioid epidemic, I met mothers whose children died of prescription opioids or or nearly died. And my heart sinks when I recall my friends, Mark and Sherry Rubin, holding Aaron's son in the intensive care unit after he took an uh, overdose of oxycodone. I'll never forget the day because it was Yom Kippur, the fast day, the saddest day in um, Jewish um, religion. And uh, we all heard about that and, and were really sad of what happened to Aaron. And I came to visit him and I, uh, everybody expected Aaron to die, but Aaron did not die. His uh, parents were by his side every minute. He became a quadriplegic, completely dependent on others for all his care. And the Rubin family took this tragic experience and became activists and inspired many others with with Aaron's consent. He's able to sign one for yes, two for no, and explain about his experience and and what happened. Aaron and the Rubin family inspired me, and and they reached out to me years ago to ask why are our doctors uh, giving these prescriptions uh, and when people are dying from it. And at that time, we didn't know, we didn't see that that was happening. What we saw in the emergency department was patients complaining of pain and we were there to help. And if you lost your prescriptions uh, in the swimming pool or Disneyland, then we were there to help you. We saw ourselves as heroes in helping you when you had problems. That's what the emergency department does. That's what doctors do. We are well-meaning. Physicians have sacrificed a lot to give back and to serve others. I have, and I know that 
all my colleagues have as well. I was curious, though, how come all those prescriptions um, were all opioids and Xanax and nobody ever lost their amoxicillin in the swimming pool. But physicians were thinking that they were doing good. They didn't realize that there was a strong voice of people who were just as angry at the one we were seeing not getting their medicines as the ones who were getting prescriptions and had bad outcomes. So that really inspired me to make a difference and and activate the medical community into smart prescribing. Not too much, not too little. I call that Goldilocks prescribing. So my lifelong mission is to make a difference. I want to help patients. I want to help families to bridge the medical community with addiction medicine and mental health. So it's all uh, one health. We are one person. We're not divided up. And on a global level for the community to unite public health, public safety, and prevention. And working together and breaking silos, we can save more lives. Now I want to talk to you about some uh, projects and topics that I think are very important to addiction medicine. There are things that you may not have heard of before um, because they're new, out-of-the-box kind of thinking. And and that's where I want to not just uh, talk about things, but offer solutions. I want to offer solutions for fentanyl, for benzodiazepines, anxiety medicines, methamphetamine, contract tracing, um, uh, better standards for addiction treatments, all sorts of ideas that I don't think that you have heard about before and that I'll be talking about during the show and throughout the show. And I'm constantly thinking up of new ideas. Uh, some of them are successful and make a difference and an impact. And um, some of them need you know, to be worked on. But I, I do want to share them with you. For example, addiction medicine. Addiction medicine is a project that we worked on while at the White House at ONDCP. It was not something um, that I thought I'd be working on. It wasn't on my list, but we realized that people before me realized that there is a lack of uh, training and people available to provide this type of medical care. And so the White House wanted to promote the profession of addiction medicine. And the power of the White House is the ability to elevate a cause and energize people to take home and make action. So we invited medical professionals from across the country to the White House to have an event and promote the profession of addiction medicine. And they went home and worked on the topic. They were energized by the experience and committed to increasing the addiction medical workforce. And that's exactly what we aimed for. We started with maybe 50 programs in addiction medicine fellowships across the country with the goal of needing 125 of them to meet the workforce demand. What is that demand? Let me give you an example. If you come to the emergency department with a broken arm, I'll get an x-ray and maybe say, hey, you have a broken arm. I'll put a splint and I'll refer you to an orthopedic surgeon, a specialist. So if you have a problem with addiction, you deserve to see a specialist in that field, just like you would if you had a broken bone or if you had a heart attack to see a cardiologist. Now what's happening is that a patient will come to the hospital with uh, an infection and maybe sit in for six weeks getting intravenous antibiotics, and they will see a hospitalist um, doctor. They'll see an ICU doctor. They'll see the plastic surgeon. They'll see the infectious disease doctor, a cardiologist if there's a heart infection. 
and they'll be in the hospital for six weeks, but nobody during that time addressed the primary problem that caused all this problem in the first place, and that's the addiction. If we start treating addiction and understanding it as the primary cause of these infections and, um, and mental health problems, then we can get to the root of the problem. And that's the point of addiction medicine and the point of the project of increasing the addiction medicine workforce by having more fellowships and trained physicians who will elevate the field and have this really across the country. And we really need every hospital in America to have a service for addiction medicine, um, just like they would have for palliative care for someone who's dying or a cardiology service, um, et cetera. We need that with addiction medicine. Okay. I started my career focused on the opioid epidemic. And now I want to tell you that I don't think we have a prescription opioid epidemic anymore. And I think that that would be shocking for people because there's so much work on opioid, opioid, opioids, and the medical community always scolded up and down about prescribing. Um, but I think it's important to celebrate the accomplishments as well. I mean, we started with, a, 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 again, that terrible problem with the number of prescription opioids, but the medical community has responded and decreased. So let's take a look at, at the numbers so I could illustrate that point. Uh, according to the CDC, the mortality data from 2018 shows almost 70,000 drug overdoses a year. A terrible number, horrific number. And, and it's actually going to be higher for 2019 and maybe higher for 2020, unfortunately. Um, we had a year where it went down and, and, and things are not doing so well now with the pandemic. But when we look at that terrible number, we have to dissect it and understand that that is all drugs and all intentions. All drugs mean that's opioids and heroin and cocaine and methamphetamine and, and anything else. And all intentions, that's accidental overdoses, homicides, suicides, accidents, everything. But if we do our best calculation to see what part of those deaths were from prescriptions or medications that don't include fentanyl, then that number is much lower. It's just 22.5% of the whole. It's important to exclude fentanyl because a lot of places they include it as a medication because it is. But over 99% of people who die from fentanyl die from illicit fentanyl that's coming from China or Mexico, not from the doctor's office. Now, it's not fair to mix the blame of overdoses of fentanyl on the medical community when that's not something that's being prescribed. In any case, all those deaths, just one death is, is too much. But, but we, let's look at where we can make a difference and where things happen. Let's look at opioids prescriptions. What, what has happened with prescriptions? Um, the data source for prescriptions is called IQVIA. And from there, we see that opioid prescriptions have been down 43% since 2011. I mean, we have to celebrate the achievements that we made and, and give kudos to the medical community for being engaged. They have been, we have been, I have been. Um, there's not a doctor in America who, who has not realized that there has been an opioid prescription problem and hasn't acted upon that in some way, excluding the criminals that may be out there, but those are minor. But if we look at the data back in 2011, that was the peak, and we were prescribing 72 pills per adult American. And we are now in 2018 down to 33 pills per American. I bet you now it's much lower. And I would say the baseline was back in 1992 when we were at 22 pills. 
So again, we're seeing nationally that the number of opioid prescriptions are down dramatically. Um, let's look at state data. Um, California has, um, every state actually has a PDMP system, a prescription drug monitoring system. And California has one called Cures. And if we go to that database, we see that the morphine milligram equivalents, the total of morphine given in pills from 2019 is lower in the history of the system of California measuring it. I mean, that's a remarkable achievement and kudos for the medical community for being engaged. As a matter of fact, there is criticism that we've gone too far, um, that um, we're not prescribing enough. And definitely while I was at the White House, I spoke to a couple family members who lost their loved ones because of suicide that they attributed to not having the opioids that they felt that they needed and they couldn't get it because of a fear by doctors from prescribing. But I would say that we no longer have a prescription opioid epidemic, not from prescription. Uh, we definitely have still an opioid problem, but that's from fentanyl. And fentanyl has been um, a game changer. When I think about um, the supply chain of drugs, all 70,000 people who died, I like to split that supply chain in two. One is the illicit market. Those are drugs that are coming from China or Mexico or other countries, heroin, methamphetamine. And that is not the supply chain of the medical community. We need law enforcement to control that supply chain. The other supply chain is the medical community. Um, that is legal drugs that are written for by a prescription, such as opioids and benzodiazepines, sleep aids, gabapentin, and even over-the-counter medicines, such as Benadryl. That supply chain, I as a physician take ownership for and want to control and have the power to control. But the point is, if it doesn't matter where the supply chain is if you have an addiction problem. All 70,000 of those patients, I wish they were alive and received treatment um, so they wouldn't die. So it doesn't matter why or where your addiction came from. You deserve compassionate uh, care without stigma. But if we're talking prevention, I'd rather prevent any drug use. I'd rather have no people addicted at all. We can improve that and decrease that by talking about safe prescribing, by uh, paying attention to the combination of medications. Most people die of a combination of medicines, not just one single drug. And we have to be very aware that um, there is an additive effect of central nervous system depression medications. And taking one drug plus another one is an additive effect. As a matter of fact, that reminds me of a patient I admitted just last night um, who uh, left the hospital for a shoulder injury, took her usual prescriptions, but then she also took a Xanax and he took her marijuana and now she was in a coma and had to be admitted to the hospital. These things happen um, because of the additive effects and we want to decrease the total mortality of medications. Um, in uh, 2018, that total mortality was 4.7 per 100,000. And we, I would like to get us to a baseline of two deaths per 100,000 where we were in 1999. Um, we are improving as a medical community, but we have a ways to go. And to improve, we really need to talk about safe prescribing. 
So I mentioned benzodiazepines. Those are anxiety uh, medications and um, they can help, um, but they can also hurt just like, like any medications or, or any drugs. Um, but we have a lot of people who are dying with benzodiazepines uh, in combination with opioids. 30% of everyone who dies from an opioid um, overdose uh, was also taking benzodiazepine. Um, 50% of everyone who dies with benzodiazepine, that specific drug is Xanax. Xanax is also called alprazolam. And so many people are taking Xanax not for the right reason or indication. Um, the red flag I have is if you've been on Xanax for years and years every day, then you're not taking it right. And it's not the right drug for you. It's a, very, it's a drug meant to be only for a short period of time. 50% of everyone who dies from benzodiazepines die from Xanax or alprazolam. And that is a specifically problematic medicine, both prescribes and the illicit Zanzibars that are uh, sold in the street. Um, so we will be talking about benzodiazepines on High Truths. And with that, I want to make a plea. Anybody out there who is a TV producer who's making shows in uh, writing scripts and movies that are podcasters or anything that you're talking about, I would really beg you to start modeling good prevention behavior. Let me tell you what I mean by that. I was listening to a podcast uh, and I've been watching lots of TV shows during COVID and there's always a character who is under stress and when they're under stress, they reach out for, you know, oh, a drink of alcohol or a Xanax or let me give you something for that. I heard a political podcast where they said, boy, after last night, what we saw, I really need a Xanax. And I want to tell you, stop it. Don't do that. That's not good talk. That's not modeling good behavior. How about instead you say, oh, I was so annoyed by that. That's so, I'm so stressed out. I just need to go on a run. I need to go drink some warm tea. I need to do my yoga. You should not be reaching out for drugs or modeling that type of behavior for the American population. And I would also request if any of you have the opportunity out there on Netflix or anyone out there, I would love to have some product placement of addiction medicine. Why don't you have an addiction medicine physician on your show showing good um, care that happens when they come in for an emergency and, and get them into treatment? And why don't you show appropriate prevention methods and, and show like, oh, no, no, we shouldn't share our drugs and, and, and teach teach, you have such an audience of people that are learning and modeling your behavior about what they're seeing on TV and hearing on the podcast, you could make a difference. You could change, really, you could change America by showing good behavior. You did it before with tobacco. You know, tobacco cessation has is really credited to what Hollywood and the media has done and making it, you know, really, you want to kiss an ashtray? You know, can you, can you do that with other drugs as well? You have the power to, to make it happen. You're doing it with alcohol, and I'd like to see you do that um, with marijuana and other drugs as well. You have the power. You can make the difference. I mentioned we don't have a problem with prescription opioids uh, anymore. I'm not, not zero, but we really don't have an epidemic anymore. But we do have an epidemic of fentanyl. Over 30,000 people have died of fentanyl and the number is climbing. And the 
the issue is they don't even know that they were taking a lethal drug. They thought that they were out partying and they got some, you know, pills and that one party was their last. That one experiment cost their life. And this hits home because I have a very good friend of the family who in October lost his beautiful 18-year-old daughter, Eileen Rivera. Uh, She was uh, finished high school, was out with uh, friends, uh, took a blue M30 fake oxy pill. There was no oxycodone in it. Uh, It had fentanyl and she died. Her friend made it, but she didn't. It's just not fair. There's really nothing more to be said except for to take a tragedy and to try to make a difference and make sure it doesn't happen to other people. The silver lining in the opioid epidemic is that for the first time in history, the medical community became engaged in finding solutions. Because we were the ones kind of causing the problems, we had that data and we um, acted upon it. And there's been amazing innovations. But we need that same type of medical engagement with the fentanyl epidemic. And we don't have it. And the reason we don't have it is because we don't have the data. Do you know that there is no FDA-approved urine drug panel that includes fentanyl? You'll have a panel of drugs that includes all the other different things, marijuana and amphetamines and PCP, but there's no FDA-approved panel of drug testing that includes fentanyl. So how can you even know to make a difference if you don't know your patients are on it? And if you care that your patient is taking THC or PCP, why would you not care that they're also taking fentanyl when there's so much that you could do about that? So that is a project that I'm heading in um, San Diego that I hope will go nationwide uh, on two fronts. One is a letter to the FDA asking for emergent use um, to allow for uh, fentanyl to be added as um, a drug test that's available for anybody um, anytime you order a urine drug screen that it would include fentanyl. We can do so much with that information. And they should do emergency use. They did it for COVID. The tests for COVID are not very accurate. I've admitted lots of patients who I think they have COVID and the test is negative and I'm not going to listen to the test. I'm going to trust my clinical experience. Um, but we should have that information for fentanyl. A positive test for fentanyl can make a difference. It could tell a person that, hey, you were exposed to fentanyl. They may not have known it. Um, that doctor is now aware of it. That person would now tell their friends, hey, guess what? You know, that thing we use, we had fentanyl. You know, we better be careful. It would lead to a prescription for naloxone. You know, if this happens again, it happened one time, can it happen again? And um, importantly, connect people to treatment. But now we have no idea. Fentanyl does not show up as an opioid on a drug test. So the patients may not know and the doctors may not know. And so there's no way to intervene. And I think that that's a very important project that I'm very proud to be working on. I am just at the beginning stage of that, of getting a landscape. There are now only four hospitals in all of San Diego who have this ability. And by the end of the project, I'm hoping almost everybody does that uniformly with the gold standard being that if you are testing and concerned about any type of drugs of addiction, it should include fentanyl as well. All right. So that was about fentanyl. But the the greatest problem we have on the West Coast is methamphetamine. And that's really hitting all of America, but hitting the West Coast really hard. 
Methamphetamine is actually the worst drug of addiction in terms of dopamine depletion and the chemical pull the drug has on the brain. And now in San Diego, it's really hard to find a person who is homeless who is not using meth. I recall the beginning of my career as a physician where people would hide their drugs from the doctor. But now I am finding baggies under hats and socks. And recently I removed a baggie with the aid of a speculum and ring forceps while doing a um, gynecological uh, exam to take out the baggie. I got the stuff out. My patient was very grateful. She was uh, minimally embarrassed. And then I thought, uh, what do I do with this baggie? Um, Should I... I mean, it's drugs. Do I call hospital security? Do I call law enforcement? Uh, Should I try to find one of those safe disposal bins? And I have to confess, I didn't really think that long. I just took it and put it in the red medical waste bin. And that was that. Moving on to the next patient. The problem with methamphetamine also is the terrible effect that it has on the heart. Methamphetamine attacks heart muscles, causing congestive heart failure. And we're at the point that I can see, if I see a young person, 50, 40, 30 years old, who has congestive heart failure, I can bet that they used to, uh, at some point, if not currently, using methamphetamine. Um, We don't have that with opioids. Opioids do not attack the heart while stimulants uh, do. And for every one person that we connect to treatment for opioids, we are sending out 10 people with untreated methamphetamine use disorder. And we're really desperate for solutions. Um, The one thing that I advocated for methamphetamine while at ONDCP um, was that money and funding that's going for opioids should also be there for methamphetamine. Um, Because the problem was ignored because there's money for opiates, but there's not money for methamphetamines. And the budget's already said, but um, I I think I said it enough times and other people uh, kept saying it as well, that now if people are having grant money to work on opioids and they also have a methamphetamine problem in their community, they could use that money um, for methamphetamine solutions as well. And there are some innovative solutions out there. And on future episodes, you will hear from FDA about stimulant disorder. And I'm trying to get the guy from Hawaii who has a, a special program where they give money to people who are not using methamphetamine and, and it seems to work. So I'm trying to uh, get him on the show. All right, there's more. Um, I think you'll... People know that about me. It's like, okay, there's more solutions. I have more ideas. It's never ending. Um, so I, I will have to put some limit on it for the show. But I do want to share another example of a great program that I'm very proud of um, called Credo. Everything in Washington needs some type of weird acronym. Um, Credo stands for Community Response to Drug Overdoses. Credo. It's a project that I really had fun working on with the Department of Homeland Security and National Security Council because I really thought it could make a difference. And the point of the project was to create a national consensus standard on how to react and um, to overdose clusters. And the premise was that there were national standards created for active shooter. When, when people, when there's an active shooter event, um, different places did different things. The, the, the shooting in Las Vegas, you know, they had different standards than the shooting in Orlando. 
And by creating a national standards, if there's an active shooter event anywhere in the country, there's a standard and protocol that saves lives and everybody's on the safe page, uh, whether it's, you know, um, social workers or law enforcement or medical field, bringing different professionals together to, to, to deal with the situation, the same thing in a, in a protocolized way. And I thought we need that for overdose clusters as well. We started this project and then, you know, COVID hit and budget areas and that's on hold. But the concept, the concept of Credo and a community response to drug overdoses should be something that every community is working on. Credo brings together the three P's, public health, public safety, and prevention. Bringing all those P's to deal with the overdose clusters. It's a type of contact tracing for drug overdoses. I am jealous of infectious diseases. Early in the opioid epidemic, I said, you know, I'm really jealous of gonorrhea and chlamydia and STDs. Why? Because they have contact tracing. They have mapping. I want mapping for drug overdoses and deaths too, not just for STDs. And we got that. And now I am jealous of wound-borne illnesses and those type of infectious diseases because they have contact tracing investigations. And I want that type of medicine and, and response to drug overdoses. The CDC has a website for foodborne outbreaks in multi-state investigations. And looking at their website in 2020, they did investigations for wood ear mushrooms that had salmonella, peaches with salmonella, onions with salmonella, a bagged salad mix with cyclospora, enoki mushrooms. I don't know what kind of mushrooms they are, but um, they had listeria. And clover sprouts had E. coli 0103, which is a very bad type of E. coli. But, you know, they have a whole department of the CDC tracking this food, eliminating it from circulation so people don't get sick. Why don't we have that for drugs? We have public health alerts when there is a wound botulism uh, related to injecting uh, black tar heroin. And now we are starting to send out public health notices when there's cluster of people who die from what they thought was cocaine, but it had fentanyl. So the public knows, um, so medical community knows, and law enforcement can go in and, and, and clean up the tainted uh, drugs and make sure other people don't die. So um, again, I, I'm still jealous of infectious diseases. Um, and I want to copy that system that we use for infectious diseases to overdoses. And we can do this. Um, we can treat overdoses like infectious diseases. As a matter of fact, I'll give you one example where that happened by accident. If you recall, before the COVID pandemic, we had an epidemic of vaping illnesses, E-Valley, electronic vaping associated pulmonary illness. Um, uh, they made up a name for it and they created their command center at the CDC to deal with that, thinking this is an infectious disease and, and um, we need, they, you know, did everything they, they did. Um, and then they found out, hey, it's not an infectious disease. It was a chemical disease, but they treated it like an infectious disease. And that's why they were successful at, um, you know, getting down to the problem, advertising the problem, alerting the community and then seeing results decreasing. People heard that message. So having envy and infectious disease is not a bad thing. I want contact tracing as a standard approach for drug overdoses. I think the medical community 
has a third-party responsibility when it comes to overdose clusters in order to intervene and prevent for other people from getting sick. And I have one more project. Just when you thought I'm done with my ideas, I do have another one. If you, if you like this, you'll have many more of these type of ideas in the show. But I do want to do one more that I'm proud of because it, it was a project that I, I thought of and, and uh, I, I got it off the ground and then it didn't really go anywhere. But I do want to share it with you. And it's called NCATS. And we made up that acronym. Um, and that acronym is National Consensus for Addiction Treatment Standards. And um, this uh, came out of an event that we had at the White House where we brought insurance companies to elevate um, the field of addiction medicine to make sure they cover that as a benefit when you have insurance. You know, you get coverage for your medical health. You should also get um, insurance that uh, covers your mental health. But uh, addiction kind of fell to the wayside. And we, again, brought top insurance companies and leaders from across the nation to, to deal with that and to take that, that home to have good care. And they pointed out that, you know, there's a lot of good programs out there that are providing great um, recovery and, and detox and treatment for addiction, but there's also a lot of fraud out there. And um, I thought the way to elevate the field is copying my friends from Credo and National Consensus Standards. And I said, you know what, we need, this is such a great idea, we need consensus standards for addiction medicine and addiction treatment as well. And that would elevate the entire field for everybody. Again, that uh, became a concept and a project that we wrote up. Um, it's on hold, but I do hope that someday the NCATS project is revived to elevate the entire treatment industry. So there I shared with you multiple projects and ideas. There's way more where that came from. So I, I hope that you have been inspired to listen more, to join our program where you will learn and hear interesting conversations, not just from me in the future, but from a lot of other smart people who have a lot to share. I learn a lot from our guests and I, I know that you will as well. And some examples are... Dr. Bertha Madras, a wonderful friend, Harvard professor who served on the President's Opioid Commission and wrote the Opioid Report, and she's also a past deputy director of ONDCP. We have Dr. Mitch Rosenthal, who's the president of the Rosenthal Center for Addiction Studies, really one of the uh, initial founders of um, addiction treatment programs in the entire country. Dr. Chip Fisher is chairman from Fisher Wallace Laboratories, who's researched using a brain stimulator to treat uh, anxiety and insomnia and addiction. And so refreshing to hear that there's non-pharmaceutical options for people who have illnesses. I also think you'll really enjoy hearing from Edward Wood, who is the founder of DUID Victim and Voices, and will be able to answer the question of, you know, how many pop brownies or um, joints can you smoke before it's safe for you to get behind a car? You will really enjoy the episode with Dr. Jeff Lapont, an emergency physician and a medical toxicologist who will explain what is scrometing. Dr. Catherine Antley is a dermatologist, and if you care about your skin and wonder how um, uh, drugs may affect your skin, you would want to listen to Dr. Antley. 
Dr. Robert Page is the author of the American Heart Association, and everybody cares what the Heart Association says. They're very, you know, the paper that they published on medical marijuana is really a landmark article that I have invited him to share and educate the public and projects that the American Heart Association will be working on. And Joe Eberstein, a prevention expert and motivational speaker who knows how to reach youth across the country. And these are just a few of the many people that you will be hearing from as they come to answer questions from you, our audience that you pose. And if you have questions, I urge you to come visit us at uh, hightruth.com and submit your question. And uh, we will hopefully incorporate it into the show. The goals at High Truths for me is to educate you so you can make your own decisions. We need Americans who are informed decision makers. It took us nearly 100 years and 7,000 publications for the public to understand the risk of tobacco. But right now, if you're a smoker or around a smoker, they know. They know the risk of addiction, of cancer, emphysema, and if they choose to continue smoking, they may be politely asked to do it away from people. But unlike tobacco, most people are not informed um, with the high truths on marijuana and many other drugs and prescriptions in our society. And uh, we aim to change that. I hope that you will learn from these experts and on the show so you will be you know, making informed decisions. Thank you for listening to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts give you facts and answer your questions. This week's episode would not be possible without the generous support from our sponsor, CCR, Center for Community for Research. If you would like to sponsor a show, contact us at hightruths.com. This is High Truths on Drugs and Addiction. Our producer is Dave Rivas of Davey Boy Productions. I am your host, Dr. Onit Lev. I hope we brought your day a little bit more high truths.